0: The S&P, the this IS This
1: Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, unlike the RBNZ, doesn't require our listeners to add in extra capital. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, though only for two more episodes, the good doctor, Dr. Ivan Mahanti. How are you, sir? I am very good. How are you? Mate, I'm excellent. We're kind of in countdown mode, though, mate. This is your second last podcast, at least as an official podcast part of the podcast we do hope to have you back i've made that public on the podcast to basically put pressure on you to come back from time to time but uh i will tell you uh spoiler alert our listeners have also asked that you return so if you won't do it for me do it for them you won't go on instagram for me maybe you'll come back to the podcast for them what do you reckon
2: uh, I, I reckon the podcast higher chances than Instagram. Instagram has basically got zero
1: chances. <laughs> 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 so anything is better than that. You're saying there's a chance. I like it. All right. Well,
2: well the um, thing is, <laughs> in, even if Instagram paid me, I'm not going there. So.
1: <laughs> oh, mate, really? <laughs> yeah. Surely oh, there's a price. Is, is there no
2: price? Uh, not that too, I'm not going to sell my soul to Instagram. <laughs>
1: Come on, I, it's, it's always a price. Oh, okay,
2: fine, a few billion dollars, and I'll
1: sell I, I, my soul. Don't rule it out too quickly, mate. You might get, you yeah. might get a knock on the door. You don't want to, you don't want to stop that off opportunity just uh, in case. Two, yeah,
2: a few billion dollars. Everyone's Actually, got few, their price. Yeah, a few hundred million dollars too. I'll
1: take it. <laughs> <laughs> mate, they could probably, you know what? They probably wouldn't even notice it. It'd be around here on the on the Facebook page now. Anyway, mate, we got a we got a big show. We, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, in honour of your last regular podcast. Spoiler alert, we may have a mailbag on Sunday. But uh, in honor of your last regular podcast, I want to get, uh, uh, frankly, I'm going to be selfish on behalf of our listeners and me and get some extra Doc Mahante value out of you in terms of your investing style uh, and some thoughts you'd like to leave some of our members with. We are as I said, going to do Sunday, but we'll do Sunday as a relatively regular mailbag episode. So in the meantime, uh, we will get a bit more Special doc goodness out of you uh, today. We will also talk a little bit about what's going on the big. Well, I was going to say the big macro news. I well suppose it is. JobKeeper is coming off in about four days' time, five days' time, uh, which has got some people a little bit concerned. We are going to talk about the the, the amazing. Uh, retail sales environment right now. Premier investments, not only with some great numbers, but some really strong forecasts. Westpac, and I mentioned at the top of the show, having to put a bit more money in the RBNZ piggy bank, effectively at least, carry a bit more capital. And Westpac threatening to leave the country over it. So interesting, there, throwing their weight around. Not quite Facebook and the Australian government, but not miles off either. And you mentioned to me, literally, just as we were about to start recording, uh, some news that I think is just... I I, <laughs> I, I think I'm almost more... more uh, I think it's more bizarre than you do, which is, which is saying something. Because so we're going to talk about solar power and, and the electricity grid. And we will, if we have time. I'll try and make sure we do have time. Although if we don't, I'll make sure I focus on you for this podcast more than anything. But if we do have time, we'll dip into the full mailbag because that's what we like to do. Shall we get on with it? Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let's uh, let's kick off with, with JobKeeper. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say. We did touch on this last week, but uh, it's so you know, JobKeeper comes off in about six to day, five days' time. It will be to some degree uh, a a watershed moment, literally for a whole lot of people, and there is real economic consequence, real financial and and potentially social consequence. For people who are going to lose their jobs come next week on the basis that simply their employers can't afford to or don't think they can afford to keep them on without that government support. That happens on the 31st of March. Um, I've seen forecasts of 50, 100, 150,000 jobs being lost. The good news, if there is any, is that job ads remain really strong. We have seen large uptick in employment Un- unemployment is now 5.8% there's a decent underemployment there but 5.8% which is better than anyone could have hoped for 12 months ago There, it, it does seem a reasonably strong employment market in which to find yourself suddenly out of work um, so I'm hopeful maybe because I'm just generally an optimist that, that's going to be a good thing your your thoughts on the end of JobKeeper mate about time uh, ready to go how, how does the economy soak, soak this up what does, it, what does it do for investors and for the economy as a, as a whole
2: like, I think we talked about this last time too. Like, I mean, to me, it seems like I mean this is a staged ramp down, right? Mm. So, I mean, right now, if you are, uh, um, if you are in one of those affected industries, then mm. yes, you're going to be affected. If you're not in the affected industry and you're still supported by JobKeeper, I don't know what needs to happen. Uh, for those jobs to be sustainable. To me, it looks like those business businesses then are basically just getting extra lifeline, mm. uh, which is, you know, frankly, not useful for anyone because ultimately those businesses will go under at some point. Those people, therefore, will have to find jobs a couple of years down the lane or a year down the lane. Um, mm. You know, if you're going to be doing it a couple of years down the lane, maybe, you know, or a year down the lane, maybe doing it now, mm. right, is, is probably just as as, as bad at
1: some point right
2: yeah it's just a it's just as bad right i mean both scenarios Mm. are bad i mean if you have if you're out of your job and you have to find another job and things like that so um i don't know i have i mean you know you've already indicated that you know retail folks are saying that they're going to have another bumper uh you know they're they're going to keep reporting bumper numbers right so Mm. the i was my sense is that you know, the way society is set up and the way uh, society is encouraged to spend, right? If you've got extra money, I mean, how many people are thinking of taking that extra money and putting it into an investment, uh, you know, thinking that I'm not going to use it right now. I'm going to use it five <laughs> years, 10 years from now. Not many, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. and sadly, right? And, and <laughs> if... If all those money the extra funds that have been available out there are going to buying the you know the jeans that you don't need and these uh, <laughs> the couch that you don't need and the sofa that you don't need and the perfectly fine um, fridge that is working uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know uh, you know my, my fridge is 10 years old <laughs> I <can't>, I expect <laughs> to run it until it basically dies I could buy a fancy new fridge but I'm just not going to do that because it's just not useful um, yeah, yeah so, so I think I think there is, you know, there's is, society is encouraged, and i'm not I'm not saying it's society's fault. Society is encouraged to spend and spend more mm. than the society mm. can afford. And this whole system driven is driven around stuff that you people actually don't need in many ways right there's valuable things that are produced and there's not so valuable things that are produced that is is basically consumption for the heck of consumption so i think that that's sort of what we are seeing right now is is my my view that the extra cash is just getting spent and then yeah. uh, at some point, <laughs> there's no extra cash while well, the spending kind of stops at that point, right? I mean, um, extra cash has been injected into the system and that extra yeah. cash is just, you know, government has printed a bunch of dollars, <laughs> that those dollars are being, you know, they were stashed and now they're being spent or they are being spent, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, right. And there's some merit to sort of that, but I think they, there are, Um, Mm. ways to think about that as to what it, you know, what it causes, you know, you're not getting any productive benefit out of some of those spending. So that's that's what I think. So I mean, I'm not really concerned that much about JobKeeper given sort of Mm. what, Mm. um, you know, sort of the retail numbers that you're seeing, sort of the numbers that people are reporting, or or sort of the guidance that people are suggesting. So uh, except for certain sectors, which I think well, those sectors are hurting largely because you know borders are closed. There's no new input of people. There's no tourism mm. until the borders open. I think those sectors can't fix themselves. So, yeah, yeah.
1: I like it, mate. Yeah, look, I'm I, <laughs> I as as you well know, mate. Over, over many years, and as our listeners know, I'm an optimist. I I tend to think if there's a I, I'm I'm op- cautiously optimistic that the market and the economy is strong enough to absorb. Those job losses, as I said, real issues for people who are going to find themselves without work come come uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next week. And and that's super painful and has impact on individuals as well as the economy. Um, I'm kind of hopeful that things come uh, continue to improve, hopefully, and get people back into work, keep the economy moving. You're right about the dollars coming away, although we also know that to some degree uh, spending creates its own virtuous cycle, and it is that sense of, as you say, money being added or subtracted that, that changes the economic circumstance, um, hopefully that continues its own, its own momentum under its own steam. Um, speaking of which, I'll, I will go to, to Premier because they had an eighty-nine percent lift in profit over the last six months, which is remarkable, really. Um, now they also kept kit which is a whole other conversation we can talk about. Um, but eighty-nine percent lift in profit, you know, was largely on the well again that jobkit money mattered, but um, but the business itself was was just really, really, really strong. Their online business continues to fire. These guys. I do wonder, mate, if they were not called Premier Investments, but called Peter Alexander or Smiggle or or something else and more people knew about them. Uh, I feel like these guys in Bunnings are probably two of the, the more underappreciated, underloved retail organisations in the country and probably for the same sorts of reasons, right? No one thinks Premier and thinks Just Jeans or, or Peter Alexander or Smiggle, as I said. No one looks at at, at West Farmers and thinks, oh, Bunnings. Uh, they kind of get hidden to some degree by, by those numbers. So those numbers are really strong. But what I thought was most interesting or maybe as interesting was that they are predicting a bumper winter, and that whole idea that, to your point, that the money that's being put into the economy continues, it seems to go around. Now, I'm always sceptical of forecasts, But yeah, as you well know. I don't think companies should give guidance. I think it's a, it's a folly because you can't control the economic circumstances. God knows we've seen that. Um, but it's one of those it's one of those things that I just thought was was an interesting insight into what's happening in retail land, and gives me. Maybe again because I'm an optimist, I'm looking for it. But it was a it was a remarkably strong forecast for a company where you know Soli's not been short of I saw allude to the chairman not been short of some you know harsh or, or negative comments when they've been needed. But it really sounds like the the pump is primed.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think I think you you're right. I think you know if <laughs>
1: you
2: know. I think this is the best sort of state that the economy can be in without fundamental changes to the economy, basically. So, uh, I mean, mm. you know, that's how I feel about
1: it. It's a, it's a, it's a really, yeah. Again, like I mean, hopefully, hopefully things continue to improve. The the downside, of course, and this is the one that I've been on for a little bit, is the amount of debt that's been taken on in the name of saving 2020. In theory, gets paid back over 20 or 30 years. Um, I don't know, mate. I, you know, buying a house you can live in for 30 years, you take a big, a big ticket item up front. We'll talk about housing in a minute. Um, but you know, any other consumption—if if someone you "Look, I'm going to go for a cruise. I'm going to take out a loan. I'm going to go for a year-long cruise in 2020, and then I'm going to pay that pay that loan back over 30 years. Um, and if I don't, if I die before I pay it off, I'll, I'll leave it to my kids to worry about." That still, to me, seems like I think I feel like to me the, the the stimulus worked, JobKeeper's worked. We can argue, and plenty of people do about how good it was, what should have changed, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm glad the economy is in, in in reasonably good shape, at least as you say, not necessarily structurally, but certainly uh, you know in in the current cycle. But I I do I do still worry about that debt not being paid back. Right, I would have thought if we are going to go through a bumper economic circumstance, effectively as a direct result of the stimulus that was put in place. Isn't it, isn't it a little bit reasonable that we, kind of we pay it back? The people who actually benefited from it um, in shorter time frames, rather than leaving these things for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and kind of making it someone else's future problem. Thank, thanks 20, you know, th- thanks 2026 20, or 2048 uh, from 2020. We really appreciate you paying our bills. I don't know. I, I don't feel great about me dropping off the perch with some of that money unpaid. I'm hopefully going to you know see it paid off before I do die, but it does seem pretty rugged, mate, that we're kind of you know we put the we put the recovery on the national credit card, but then made it someone else's problem.
2: Yeah, but the, the national credit card is a bit elastic, right? I mean, it doesn't have a credit limit technically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs> so, so there's, I mean, you know, it uh, doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. mean the next generation. overdraft. Has to pay. <laughs> yeah, so it can be an overdraft, and, I, I mean, I think you know this. The overdraft can become a bigger overdraft, which can become a bigger overdraft <laughs> over time. I, I think the yeah. danger is. Uh, so I, I don't see. I don't see any of this as a short-term problem. I think right. they are all fine in the short term. I think this is why I say structural. I think yeah. there are structural issues that, you know, as productivity mm-hmm. improves via technology, and as job becomes redundant because. You know you don't need those you know lower skilled jobs and you need people to have specific mm. skills and therefore not mm. training people to have those specific skills I think is where the problem is so I think you yeah, don't right. you, know these, these are issues that you wouldn't see uh, materialize in you know 10 mm. years or five years you'd see them materialize over 25 30 50 years so I think that the, mm. the, the bigger question in my mind is in next 50 years and 50 years from hence what what there is a bigger debt but the question really is, do you at that point have the capacity to print more money to pay off the debt or do you have the ability to actually pay mm, off the debt? Mm. Have you actually caught up with, um, you know, mm. there's a lot of transformative things happening, right? So the question really is that if, you know, let's give you an example, right? So If, if all driving becomes autonomous, mm, then you don't mm. need that many drivers. But driving is a highly paid job. Mm, mm. What happens? Right? Yeah. so I think those are the uh, are the uh, are, yeah. are the sort of questions you can and I think you know so uh, like most governments can't don't want to it's very hard to think long term right I mean you know mm-hmm. the, the, anybody who's in power today is going to think about my power today and the election in the next three years mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I think th- those are the bigger challenges I think so I mean, I'm not that concerned <laughs> about the, the debt what I would have liked to see is that debt being used um, mm-hmm. Yeah. To drive some of those yeah, future pot- yeah. potential things, to so put improvements not-
1: right rather than passing yeah. benefit. Yeah, yeah passing I, benefit. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you fix that one, mate. I, I've been a bit frustrated on Twitter recently, as some of my followers may know. Um, I'll give our Twitter handles in a minute. the The lack of foresight. I mean, I don't blame a government for not having, you know. Well, <laughs> given they were from a standing start, I don't blame them for not making those productivity changes you talk about when you had to turn something around in a couple of weeks to make sure, you know, hundreds of thousands of Australians didn't get laid off or, or you know, potentially a million of us if you think about the numbers. Um, unemployment goes to 10, 11, 12%. Some people, remember some people were saying 20% early on? Like, I think we forget really easily how... And I don't... P- partly, I think those people are just general doom and gloomers, but also if the government had done literally nothing, I'm pretty sure those numbers would have been right, right? I mean, that was the that was the thing we're facing. So I guess I don't blame them, you know, from, from, from February, <laughs> getting it wrong. But you'd like to think that... I don't know what the solution is, governments, bureaucrats, think tanks, somebody can kind of put together a list of one of those, even if it's like, hey guys, when you need it, here are the list, or you know, here are the changes we would make, and I don't know if it's longer parliamentary terms, or uh, the wrong people in government, or a bureaucracy that's not tasked to do it, or I don't really know what it is or what I would do, but as you say, the, the frustration was, I don't think they had much other choice at the time. Because no one had done the preparation to say, "Hey, if we ever get to this point, if we ever need a billion-dollar idea, or a five-billion-dollar, or ten, or a hundred-billion-dollar idea, um, or what is plural, what what things would we do? Let's make sure they're ready. Let's have them in the bottom of the drawer. We can go. Actually, guys, here, literally, the old TV cooking show. Here's one I prepared earlier. Here is Snowy 3.0, or here is." you know, uh, investment in research and development infrastructure or here is what, whatever whatever those things are. I don't claim to know the answers, but it, it's just bloody frustrating that we, we live in such short political cycles and it seems nobody, even even the non-political think oh, tanks, they they're all political, I suppose, but you know what I mean? The non-politicians in the think tanks and the, the universities, I mean, someone's got to have a uh, some foresight. Maybe they're not tasked for it. Maybe they're not paid to do it. Maybe it's just too hard or too, too political, too partisan. Just bloody frustrating. <laughs> Any thoughts? Yeah, it-
2: yeah, no, my, my analogy is, is a simple one. So basically, I think you can think of any company, any country as a company. Mm. So assume Australia is basically... Um, Australia Inc. Com- yep. Australia Inc. And Australia <laughs> Inc, let's say, resembles the GE of 1900s. Okay? <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. Everything is great. But well, you know, well, get, well every, um, everything is
2: great and, you know, we love this and yeah. we love that, you know, love our public health care yeah, yeah. and we love, you know, our great roads and we love the harbour and things like that. The mm-hmm. problem is, the if you don't adapt, then there will come a time when you'll have to sell your, uh, you know, turbine making department and you'll have to sell your, you know, capital lease <laughs> department and and. Yep. And some of that is inevitable because that's going to happen. So you have to accept that that's going to happen because that's what happens with even corporations, right? So, yep. and and there's no easy fix to it, as you said, because yeah. everybody's trying to... It's very difficult for, um, you know, the analogy, another analogy, right? Mm. Everybody knows that you should make electric cars, but not everybody is going to make electric cars because it's very mm. hard to change over your entire uh, setup to... Mm make something else right Right. so you can't drop so this is always a chicken and egg problem and therefore what you really need is a a mechanism for slow adaptive change and I fear that that never happens or that's not happening because um, we are too I guess we are too comfortable in our way Mm. right Mm. and if we're too comfortable in our way and we always you know my my wording for this is we're always interested in maximizing and uh, or getting to a local optimum, and we're never thinking about a global mm-hmm. optimum, and therefore we can't. Mm-hmm. We don't always think about, oh, this is good for us right now, mm-hmm. right? And we don't want to sacrifice what is good for us right now for mm-hmm. what is actually mm-hmm. good for us in the long term. I think this is mm-hmm. typical challenges that's very difficult um, to fix. But you know, I think you, 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 uh, and, and, you know, and that, that's what causes disruption, changes, and, and things like that. So, it, yeah. Um, that's not easy fix.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's unfortunately right. <laughs> let's let's move on, mate. Um, I spoke about Westpac in the opener, and and I'm I'm loath. Well, maybe I should maybe I shouldn't be loathe to give you a chance to rant about house prices because you got a couple of last chances, so I might as well give you the opportunity. Um, I, so the Westpac thing in New Zealand was interesting for a couple of reasons, mate. And, and so the 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 backstory here is. The RBNZ, so the, the New Zealand version of the RBA, they kind of also are their version of APRA. So we have the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority and RBA, and they kind of work side by side, kind of a little bit of overlap, but mostly in different areas around the regulation of, of banking, the banking sector. The RBNZ does both of those things in New Zealand. And it's just interesting to me a couple of things happening in New Zealand. The first is, of course, they've changed some of their um, negative gearing rules for housing to try and calm the growth in house prices. But in the Westpac story in particular, they basically said, "Hey, Westpac, if you want to operate in New Zealand, we need you to have more money sequestered away um, as, as you know, kind of they call it, you know, a Tier One capital. To use the, the um, I was going to use a different word there to use the jargon. Um, the idea that basically banks should have a certain amount of cash laying around to prevent a bank run and to cover any bad debts they may incur. That's that's required across the board internationally, to different levels. There are international rules and local rules." The RBNZ said basically to Westpac, hey guys, you got to keep more money with us. Now, if you're a bank and your money is inventory and you can't lend it out to make money, that's effectively dead capital. It's great for the system, by the way. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Um, but if you're if you're a bank, you say, well, hang on, I, I could lend that money out and get two or 3% for it. Or I can have to leave it here, just tuck it away, leave it in the vault, never touch it. It's money I can't make money from. And and again, because money is their inventory, literally money makes money for them. And if they can't lend it, they can't make more profits. That is going to reduce the future profitability of Westpac to some degree in New Zealand. And the bank basically kind of upping the ante here and saying, well, guys, be careful. If you don't, you know, if you don't want us to do this, if you if you want to kind of treat us this way we're going to pull out of the country. And it just occurred to me that, so there's the housing angle, of course. And then there's the Facebook angle, where it was kind of, you know, Facebook banning news in Australia and basically the Australian government, hey guys, you know, stuff it. Um, you know, we're out of here unless you, unless you can kind of, you know, find a way to make it work for us. It's just, it's another, and again, the Westpac New Zealand thing is it's kind of interesting because at a scale level, I don't know that I don't know there's a very direct ratio between you know Facebook to Australia and then Westpac to New Zealand, but it's not miles different in the sense that obviously Westpac are much smaller company than Facebook, but New Zealand are a much smaller economy, and the corporates kind of throwing a bit of weight around here and saying, "Nah, be careful what you wish for, guys." Like we're happy to do business with you, and we're happy to do the right thing, but if you push us too far, we're out of here. Um, your thoughts, mate, on on that kind of I guess go go as broad or as narrow as you want, but that kind of company government interaction and the the impact on on regulation and house prices.
2: Yeah, the, the company government uh, interaction is fascinating, right? Um, it, it's fascinating that uh, companies can actually. I, I mean, it, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not. Well, it's fascinating, but it's not surprising that companies can actually now hold. Companies, in many ways, hold more power than um, mm. governments. Actually, I don't mind that largely because, um, the, you know, I think companies did have power ultimately from people. Uh, because mm-hmm. and, and uh, oh, they derive yeah. power, yeah, they power from people, right? So if people yeah, yeah, didn't like yeah. a service, they would exit it. People didn't like a bank, they would exit it. You know, if people had more choices, they would probably use a different bank. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the power that companies therefore derive is, in many ways, very democratic, mm-hmm. right? Um, if if so, so I think they have some right. I think, in my opinion, to uh, uh, exert, um, I guess, their view. Um, and then the other, I think, interesting thing is about companies is many companies, especially tech companies, are in the forefront of change. And, and they're in the forefront of change. And therefore, they understand what's going on better than maybe people who actually write the rules or the laws mm-hmm. because often they're backward looking in nature. And as we have traditionally seen, what happens is when regulation is is designed to actually rein in something, it only helps the incumbents, right, mm-hmm. which is sort of what you don't want to Actually, to happen, you want a level playing field, so the incumbents are constantly, you know, challenged by disruptors, who then become the incumbents, who are then challenged Mm -hmm. by disruptors, right? Right, Which is actually net net good for consumers worldwide, because more competition essentially drives prices down, right? So, uh, so I think I'm I'm a big fan of uh, less regulation and less rules, because ultimately, um, I think the, the fundamentally, I think what people don't understand is disruption is largely caused not in the same sector but by a di- in a different sector so mm-hmm. y- y- you know like there's a lots lots of examples right i mean the a traditional to traditional fight is never a disruption it's going to be a traditional to a non-traditional fight it's always a David versus Goliath fight right, in, right, in, right. The, in the world of disruption I think this you know this is very hard for for some to actually get around there that's exactly what happens um, um, right and and it creates options for new um, so in the in the context of in the context of uh, how all that's said, in, in the context of house price control uh, I don't know how many people realize this, right? But banks are probably the most leveraged entities that exist.
1: I mean, that's their entire job, right? As you say, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, so that, you know, if we tell people to not leverage up their, you know, investment accounts, yeah. the, ba- the banks are a perfect <laughs> example of what, actually we don't want anyone's balance sheet to look like. Uh, right, you know, right. they, they basically literally have $10 of cash for $100 of supposed asset. Correct. <laughs> right? And, and I think what... What the New Zealand government is basically saying is, look, right now you carry $10 of uh, cash for $100 of assets that you have on your Mm -hmm. book. Those assets could any day become $80 worth or they could be worth, you know, $150. Um, And if they become $80 worth now, you have less cash.
1: (laughs) And and let's do the maths, right? If you've got $10 of of debt, uh, $10 asset for $100 of debt, if $100 becomes $90 because your assets go away, that wipes out the equity you've got. So now you've got no equity at all and still $90 worth of debt. I mean, that, yeah, that's exactly. why those capital rules are so important because you don't need, you, know, you only do a fraction of what you've lent out. If that doesn't get paid back, you literally become insolvent super fast. In fact, and, and again, to your point, mate, about people, what people don't understand, 1990 feels like a very long time ago and it makes me feel old because uh, it feels like yesterday, but when I do the maths, it, it scares me. Um, but Westpac almost went broke. They, they literally almost went out of business in the 1990s recession for exactly that reason they had too many bad debts not enough cash in the balance sheet not enough capital available um, it can happen and the 90s recession wasn't great but it wasn't the GFC and it wasn't the Great Depression you know that, that was a a serious recession but not by any stretch an unusual one in in historical terms it, it, it could have gone very differently
2: yeah so I, I actually and on, on, you know I, I I am actually in agreement with mm, sort of the policy of the New Zealand mm. government here. You can't let an asset, especially a non productive asset like housing, mm. become so expensive that it's basically a speculative market where basically it's, you know, I, I call it the laddering, right? You know, one person buys mm. a house, now they, they have some equity in it, so therefore they take debt against that, buy another one, now yeah. that price goes up, and therefore, uh, you know, you uh, take more debt against it, and then and the question I ask everyone is, well, you take all this debt, and then you think you have all this money because you have all this real asset, and then mm. you look at the difference between the theoretical price on the market versus minus the, uh, the debt you have, and you think you're very rich. What happens when the price goes down, and you still have yeah. to service the debt at that load, Right. Very quickly things can turn ugly, and I think people, you know, exactly as we tell people yep. not to lever up their uh, investment accounts. I mean, don't lever up your accounts on property as well. If you lever up your accounts, mm-hmm. that you can't pay for it, that's very, you know, that's how you, you you know you're you know when the tide goes out, you know you're swimming naked. <laughs> Basically, when the tide
1: goes up, I think that's really important, mate, because. What I think you know, one of the things that so house house housing used to be a a, a lifestyle asset, right? It was a thing we we bought, we put it over our, our heads, kept us dry, warm, and clean. Hopefully, uh, for most of us who who have are fortunate enough to have housing, and, and that was kind of what it was. Over the last thirty years, maybe even forty years now, housing has become much more of a financial asset, and that's not necessarily well. You can argue whether it's a good or a bad thing. It is, it is right, but and and the reason well, we can get back to whether it's a good or a bad thing in a sec. But the, the fact that it is means that. It has become an asset that is governed by supply and demand, but more importantly, or probably more importantly, I think, also the cost of money. And it is just a truism that a financial, if you once once it becomes a financial asset, once you say housing is, and we can call, you know, we call housing to your point, you want to make the Australian economy, you know, a company. If we made housing a stock, and, and call it, you know, Australian Housing Incorporated, ASX AHI, um, you know, when the at the same level of, of rental payments, i.e., income or earnings. You can pay more for that. In other words, the price goes up when interest rates go down. When interest rates go the other way, like all shares, that is going to put downward pressure on share prices and it should because that's just that's just that's the law of financial assets is what happens. When I say law, it's not mandated to happen, but it just does because that's what, how market participants treat it. In that context, if housing is a financial asset and that relationship holds, not only could it go down, Doc, but it, it arguably should. And I, mean, I don't mean should from a moral perspective. I mean, should purely financially. When rates are higher, asset prices should be lower. And if, if housing is a financial asset, then it, it is immensely logical. That's exactly what should happen. And, you know, as you say, people who aren't prepared for that really should be. Because if you own a house, uh, an investment property, or your own home, know that this is now an asset price that fluctuates with interest rates in a way that simply never has before. We didn't see it during, you know, when rates went to 17% in 1990, we didn't see house prices fall through the floor. We didn't see, you know, in in previous recessions or previous interest rate cycles, right back to the early '80s. But these days, it's a purely financial asset, and you know, you might think of it differently, but the market is absolutely treating this like it was any, like a bond or a share or anything else, and it should and probably, I think, will move in line with interest rates as a result.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's that's a you know it's a fair guess, and I think that's probably right. Um, yeah, look, I, I think that's you know not even making this a you know. The, the, this, it's almost like there's a housing has a scarcity value and I sort of get it why there might yep. be a scarcity value in a place like New Zealand yeah. it's got limited land mm. uh, this, there shouldn't be a scarcity value in a country like Australia it's got a yeah. lot of land right? Now, you could say there's scarcity value up north in Sydney because, you, you know, if you want to... Actually, technically, you could also build into the water if you wanted to do like, you know, they've done mm-hmm. in, in, in Dubai or Sri Lanka yeah, Singapore, or... Singapore, yeah. yes yeah, <laughs> Singapore, Hong Kong, yeah. right? I mean, you could basically build into the water if you wanted to. Uh, but yeah. but you've got plenty of land, right? So, I mean, the scarcity value is very artificial mm-hmm. in that sense. So, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, it's um, I, I think it's, it's dangerous just for the levels of debt and I think what the New Zealand government is doing I think is basically saying well you know if the, the other thing that people I think don't realize is the, the housing market uh, overall I think it's three times the size in Australia uh, of the stock market right so the ripple effect of uh, of destabilization is, is pretty pretty big Right. So, uh, I mean, you know, for, if, if you're a regulator, you want to probably make sure that, you know, you, uh, you don't let your policies cause... Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And if you think, if the other thing to think about is, right, I mean, a non-productive asset that goes up is essentially purely a function of demand and supply. Right. But if, there are, if if borders are closed, for example, in New Zealand, and you know the only people coming in are a few thousand people that are let into the country,
0: <laughs>
2: how has the demand gone up? Actually, you know it's yeah. you know yeah. it's, a, it's a question to ask. How has the demand gone up um, yeah. to drive prices up?
1: I I, I wonder that man. That's, I guess the only thing about the scarcity value thing you talked about, and the only I have a really strong view, or even a, even a really formed view on this one. The only thing I think about when it comes to that sort of scarcity value is just the impact of. We think about property as a single thing, and like the like the share market is, is kind of averaged out and aggregated. It's not a single thing necessarily. I can I can see a, a scenario where you know the 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 prices we talk about and the biggest impact on prices is not the hundred thousand dollar block of land, hundred k's west of Tauri. It's the harborside mansion, or even just the you know the the block of flats two two streets back from. Rose Bay or Double Bay in Sydney or in New Farm or in Toorak or whatever or uh, Malvern in Melbourne. Um, I don't know the equivalents in, in Perth and Adelaide, so forgive me, people from, from those states. Um, but to some degree, is not the whole thing kind of artificial in the sense that, you know, we could all be housed. You know, you, you and I could sell our houses. We could go and live another 400 kilometres away and bank, you know, a, a very large six-figure sum in change, but we choose not to. And so to some degree, while the supply is artificially constrained at some level. You can build as many houses as you want, a thunder of west of Taree, but no one's going to go and live there, so they'll end up being empty at the same time as people are still clambering over each other and paying stupid prices to live in Sydney's eastern suburbs or, or Melbourne's you know, leafy uh, inner south or, or wherever else. Um, there, there is some there is some sense of us all being a little bit nuts, right? <laughs> desperately desperately trying to outbid each other for the same thing where we could kind of be a little bit more sanguine and, and frankly rational and go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to pay a little bit less and live a couple of streets or a couple of suburbs or a couple of kilometers further away. Um, I, I do wonder, you know, how much housing would you have to build where to stop the the mad scramble at low rates where money is so cheap to get to to that point?
2: Yeah, I I I, I don't know. Like, I mean, there's a lot of I uh, you know anecdotal evidence of people you know becoming property investors. And a lot of money is basically falling. Like, yeah. so my thing with property though is it's a simple thing, right? Property to me is almost like, like housing is almost yeah. like electricity, water, internet yeah, <laughs> these yeah. days, right? So basically, yeah. if the internet is priced such that nobody, you know, some people can't have it, it's, I think, a problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If electricity is priced so that some people can't have it, I think it's a problem. And, yeah. and if a housing, in my view, at least, you know, I can get commercial estate, real estate being a financial asset, but you know, like... Uh, residential real estate which is basically meant for people to live mm. and mm. You know, be a roof under the, over their head I mean it should be an asset but it, to become a financial asset that is speculative in nature that is you know, uh, built up with tons of debt I think it's just unfortunate for those people who are being disenfranchised from it right? I mean I think that's yeah. I mean, there's, there is yeah, ab- absolutely a societal question there Some some people are getting rich at the cost of many others in that sense, right? And I I mean, I'm saying that as a homeowner, like you know, it would not. Honestly, to me, if 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 my house price fell by thirty percent, and that made it actually affordable for hundreds of other people, Mm -hmm. I think think that's a fantastic outcome because you know, like people are having. Having the opportunity, it's like basically saying, I don't want some people to have electricity. They can have only borrowed electricity or borrowed internet, or they can have the crappy internet. Totally. I don't know.
1: Yep, totally.
0: Motley Fool Money. (laughs) Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash
1: triple M. Because it's your last regular podcast, mate. Let me let me uh, let you rant a little bit further on property, or at least suggest a solution. Would you reduce? Would you reduce or remove negative gearing? Would you reduce or remove capital gains tax discounts? Would you limit the amount of money people can borrow by housing with their investors or owner occupiers? Would you just target investors? If if I, I, I you want to be, I only want to be governor of the RBA, but today you're going to be the head of APRA instead, uh, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, and, and maybe maybe treasurer or minister for housing. Um, I know it's a stupidly difficult question. Maybe you've got a great answer, by the way. Maybe you haven't, but um, I don't think I do. Although I've got some thoughts. Would you, what would you do to, to kind of solve the house price problem um, assuming the, assuming we get rid of the politics, right? A whole lot of people are not going to vote for you if their house prices go down. So let's assume politics is out of it for this, because frankly, neither you nor I have a lot of time for that. But just from a policy perspective, if if your job was to create and implement a, a sustainable housing policy, I mean, sustainable policy, not sustainable housing. That's a whole different question. Uh, a policy for sustainable housing. What would you? What do you have a sense of what you might do, or or what would be top of your hit list, or or what you'd look into first? Yeah.
2: So one of the first things to get rid of is. Um, uh, I, I think it's actually one of the first things that I require is if you're investing, uh, I would require actually the bank to look at the aggregate of your loan, personal loan, okay, um, uh, for, a, for a personal mortgage and the mm-hmm. the mortgage that you're taking on uh, on commercial property. And I would mandate mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't have uh, basically more than a 10%, you know, uh, Ten to ninety, or ninety percent LVR for your or your home,
1: uh, mm.
2: that will be the minimum. And I would actually require this, the LVR for an investment property be somewhere in the range of sixty mm. percent. And, and I think that would take okay. out a lot of the heat. Um, yeah, yeah. The Are higher. for
1: investors, or for owner occupiers as well?
2: No, no, no. So, so owner occupiers, you know, whatever eighty percent or ninety percent, whatever we do these days, I think that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I Asha, I would, you know, I think that that is important, and I would, I would. Uh, at the same time, say, for investors, if you are investing, I would say that you have to look at the aggregates. So you have to still maintain a minimum mm-hmm. of 80 or 90% on your personal mortgage or your mortgage that you're the mm-hmm. house that you live in, and then, and then you require a 60% LVR for mm-hmm. the property that you're actually investing. And I think that mm-hmm. would take mm-hmm. on some of the heat um, of, you know, <laughs> it's very easy to have two 90% LVR <laughs> things yeah, yeah. and, you know, pl- 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 hey, lenders, you know, mortgage insurance and whatnot to sort of ride ride that Mm. over. I mean that's one of the things I do. I would absolutely get rid of negative gearing. I think um, negative gearing is is bad for a couple of reasons, right? Mm. It is an incentive. It's a policy that at a very simplistic level suggests that you should have a loss because a loss allows you to reduce income. Right. But you are, a housing investment should be viewed as a cash flow investment. If you can't make enough cash flow on it, you're basically losing money. (laughs) (laughs) And you're speculating with huge amounts of debt. So, um, and I think, you know, given that there's leverage involved, if there was no leverage involved, I would say you Mm. can have negative gearing with no leverage. (laughs) Mm. That's fine. You want to have, you know, you want to buy a $2 million house and have wonderful negative gearing. Be yeah. my guest, but I would say negative gearing with leverage is just is it's yeah. it's absolutely basically like a, uh, like a margin account which is fully margined up the wazoo, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that's what, those are the two things I would do, and I think that no. sort of thing would would reduce reduce the heat uh, or you know just put a, it just needs a bit of a handbrake. The yep, other thing I would sense. look at is uh, the final thing I look at is just land release plans, mm. right? I mean, um, I think there's absolutely a relationship between sort of how supply is managed, and mm. and you know, and that has a direct impact on pricing. And I think the other, the final yeah. thing is that we've already seen this happening, right? There's this there's strong demand now for um, for more rural versus more urban, you know, or semi-rural or whatever you want to call it, right? People are moving, you know, people are happy to go to your side because they can actually now work from your side uh, instead of, you know, having to choose to live in the city suburbs, right? So, I mean, I think that has a lot of value and that actually creates an opportunity for actually developing uh, smaller towns, Mm. right? Actually, actually provide a little bit better infrastructure, you know, we grow them, we don't make them into huge cities. But I mean, I think you have the opportunity to actually improve infrastructure and grow them to allow for more people to live there in a sustainable well, like, fashion. I mean, those days and
1: and internet and yeah, everything else, you that, could fix that pretty quickly, right?
2: Exactly, you know, and, and you know, I'd look at that. I think those sort of three things would, not necessarily like them, kill housing, but I think they would reduce the
1: sort of the <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll give you two two thoughts in response. I actually agree with most of what you said. I think um, the thing I've, my concern with negative gearing, I don't I mean you could resolve it reasonably easily depending on what rules you wanted to put in place. But my only concern with negative gearing is it would we let companies deduct losses all the time for lots of different investments um, by virtue of their that the way we treat their PLs. And it may, to some degree, push housing into being owned by corporations rather than individuals and tax deductions to be taken there. So you'd probably across the board have to say to everybody, you cannot, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, you can't claim a tax deduction on a residential property almost almost as a matter of course, right? Because otherwise, we let we let companies do that, and, and I can absolutely imagine if if you know the, every every accountant in the country is going all of a sudden have these company shelf companies set up for people who want to go and use their company structure to do that instead of their the, the kind of personal income structure. Um, so that may be the negative gearing concern. I guess I, I just want to make sure that got resolved. Uh, the 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 sprawl land release problem, I think it's, I think it's a real one, and I don't I'm I'm really torn on this, mate, because there's an environmental impact. Of, of more sprawl, and there's a lifestyle impact of more density. And so it's kind of one of those difficult things where it's a population discussion. And I'm far, far underqualified to have this conversation in any detail, any depth, but I do wonder how far, how long. I mean, things like uh, the, I mean, Sydney's dams are overflowing now, but a, a, a year ago, though, uh, we're getting close to empty um, because we simply got you know not enough infrastructure for the people, and there is a cost to the infrastructure in, in both physical financial and environmental terms. Uh, so I don't, I don't really have a strong view on, maybe it's a population question, maybe it's an infrastructure question, maybe it's an environmental question, a question between sprawl versus density. Um, I don't have a solution for that, but that'd be the, the question I'd probably want to have a think about and have answered.
2: Yeah, so here's a question about negative gearing, right? So, so correct me if I'm wrong, right? So negative gearing effectively says that if you have losses on your investment uh, property, you could, you could actually use that to offset other income, Right. Yeah, which is different from say, if I have losses on my stock investments, I actually can't use that to offset
1: yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. uh, other income, yep. right? Yeah. So, so I think the only the big issue I have, I don't have issues with you know losses being used to offset future profits. Yeah, that's yeah. that's traditional uh, tax counting, right? People have losses yep. that they eventually offset against profits. Uh, what I have issue with it is the way it is treated, which basically gives this notion that you can have this supposed uh, money-making investment, mm-hmm. which is allowing you to reduce your tax liability today.
0: <laughs>
1: That's how oh, it's yeah, sold. Yeah, except that companies can do that as well, though, right? Like if you if you're a company that had an income stream and a and, and it bought a property, you you can. It's not even future losses. You can literally just yeah you know, take one from the other, right? So if I if I was a company and I was Scott Phillips Incorporated working for the Motley Fool, I had my income coming in, and I bought an investment property and the company's name, and that lost some money. My P and L would show Scott Phillips and hundred dollars from the Motley Fool, um, the you know, and and ten dollars for rent, but paid out forty five dollars in mortgage repayments. Therefore, my taxable income is fifty five dollars. If I've done the maths right, thirty five dollars, whatever it was, um, you know. So, so even even in current year, that kind of you know, because it's not a capital transaction. If I set myself up as a company, I could happily wash that stuff through. So I just, I just think at some level you'd need to be. and I think it's like it's absolutely doable. We just have to decide to do it, um, but that'd be the bit I just want to make sure was allowed for, so that we didn't effectively push property speculation profits, whatever, into the hands of companies away from individuals. Not that individuals should do it or need to do it, but um, but you know I, I don't think it's. We just want to be careful of unintended consequences. That's all. Yeah. Hey, um, let's move on, mate, because I wanna I wanna well actually what have we, how much time we got? We've got a little time left. Uh, not much actually. Do you want to talk about solar? Do you care enough? Or do we just talk about your investing style? What do you want what do you want to do, mate? Your your call. Well, let's
2: talk about solar because I think that's more right. interesting. We have talked about mining. Let's, do, let's style. talk quickly
1: and let's yeah. make sure we get back. We'll we'll hold Marbag over. Firstly though, before I do any of this, mate, um, I, I will I won't ask people to ask you questions on on Uh, for the mailbag on Sunday because we're going to record that before people hear this and by the time they've sent the questions, you'll unfortunately have ridden off into the sunset. But um, you can still follow Doc and you should on Twitter. At Anirban Mahanti is his Twitter handle. Um, Jump on there. You get lots of great stuff from Doc. Um, Tech, investing, insights, really, really cool stuff. So at Anirban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter handle. Jump on there and follow him. If you want to follow myself or The Motley Fool uh, on both Twitter and Instagram, our handles are at p. And the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. That's Twitter and Insta, and on Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia is our corporate page, and Scott Phillips Money is my work page. All right, so that's out of the way, mate. Um, let's talk about solar very quickly. The <laughs> I am I am blo- my mind is blown, mate. The energy market regulator is po- raising the idea, putting up the flagpole, as they say in political circles, of charging us to sell our power from our panels. Back to the grid. Actually, charging us to do that. I mean, they don't charge the coal companies, or they don't charge the you know the, the the gas generators. But somehow, look, I'm massively biased. I have panels on my roof. You have panels on your roof. We are far from unbiased. But I don't think we can put that personal bias aside. They're going to charge us up to seven. Or our our total proceeds from the average solar panel will be seven percent less because we've got to pay for the privilege of actually putting power back into the grid. Now, on one hand, I get the fact that those surges are causing costs and they're cost related with extra energy being added to the grid and that's all kind of true to some degree but I don't see them charging orange energy uh, for, for you know, supplying more energy from a, from a gas-fired or, or renewable or coal-fired power station into the grid and yet somehow they reckon it's appropriate to charge us as potential producers of energy <laughs> to sell it back to the grid. Look, I, I can't get super worked up about it. 7% is not a big deal either way. But, man, like this just feels like the most tone-deaf reality. And i got to say, the more expensive it is to sell or the, or the less money we get for selling power back into the grid just makes batteries more likely and actually makes the whole grid breakdown far more probable and, and frankly, faster. I think this is just the most bizarre... Look, I'm an energy market expert. This seems to be the most bizarre thing in the world. Tell me I'm wrong.
2: No, I don't think you're, you're wrong. I think what it is doing, though is, uh, well, so so from their standpoint, right? I mean, I think what they're basically saying is, um, so the solar technology has improved a lot, right? So if you put a, mm. put in panels 10 years ago, versus if you're putting in panels now, your panels, the same panels for the same cost, would yep. be effective in <laughs> generating probably something in the in a neighborhood of 70% more power uh, at probably 50% less cost or something yeah, like that, right? right? Something right. ridiculous. So, so there's a lot of generation capacity, and there's been a huge surge in uh, Australians putting solar panels. I mean, why wouldn't yeah. you, right? I mean, if you've got a roof and you know, this is a sunny country, why wouldn't you do that? Because it just makes sense. You could pretty much power on a sunny day your entire house on solar. It is the um, craziest
1: that- ROI you can actually... Uh, for the, if you've got a roof... like I, I mean, not everyone's got a few grand to throw, probably five or seven grand to put panels on the roof. I can't think of a better... Even investing, mate. Like if you gave me a hundred bucks and invest it somewhere I, I, for the best ROI, I think I'd say to you, can I, buy, can I put solar panels on your roof, please? Like, I can't, I, is it, it's a, it's 25-ish percent. Yeah, it's payback in like four years. It's something stupid. Like, I don't know exactly. It depends on where you are and how much power you generate and how many panels and where the sun is and all that kind of stuff. It is just stupidly, stupidly, if you're listening to this and you don't have panels and you can, please do me a favor, do yourself a favor. Sorry, I'm, I'm ranting on your on your topic here, Doc, but go and put panels on your roof. Like, not you, The listeners. If you haven't got them on the roof, seriously, what are you waiting for? This is this is money for. If you've got the capital cost, this is money for jam. Anyway, go on, mate.
2: Yeah. So, but I think the issue though is that as as better panels are put, as more panels are put, I think there's more power being generated, and excess power is being generated, which is being fed back, and it's causing grid instability, right? So, like, mm. I mean, you know, the the electric grid is very old, and it's one of those, you know, mm. uh, like like many things, right? The road infrastructure is very old. Uh, the yeah. the grid infrastructure is very old, and these are primed for disruption because, mm. you know, they, they haven't been updated in such a long time. And technology has yeah. just so much changed. It's so rapid, you know, like what you used to get the grid in 1930s. Yeah. Imagine what has happened between 1930s, 1920s and now, right? Mm. Uh, so I think that is the reason that, you know, they're basically trying to sort of keep the grid stable. I think that makes a lot of sense. What it does though mean is a couple of different things, right? They've been trying this in, uh, in, uh, in South Australia, for example, which is known as virtual power plants. So you put a battery actually in every home. Every home in Australia actually should come with default with a battery and a solar panel. Any home that's built right now should actually come with those.
1: And the homes can basically... very basic- least panels, surely, like the very uh, least.
2: So I think actually with both, not with just panels, yeah. but actually with batteries. And, okay. and you would have... All new suburbs should basically be a virtual power plant so the, all the right. power plants should basically be collaborating with each other um, and and generating power and you know uh, d- there are different houses who don't use power at a given point in time mm-hmm. that houses use power you could even take that power generated by this distributed battery and send it somewhere else um, so I think this is, is sort of pointing towards that direction I guess my eternal frustration is a couple of different things we have an opportunity given sort of our um, you know some generation to actually be leaders in uh, in in distributed energy generation, storage, and other related uh, areas. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems just like that we have decided we're going to be consumers. Um, of this technology but not participate <laughs> in this huge <speech laughs> yeah. opportunity whether it's yeah. manufacturing of batteries or things like yeah. that. Um, right. I think that's very frustrating I think but I, th- I think at least we should we can adopt we can be the leading edge adopter of things so, so VPPs are, I'm very happy to see that VPPs are being as a bunch of power plants are being used and deployed in places like South you know we're already putting some very very big um, you know battery plants whether it's in South Australia or in Victoria and now in New South Wales that's Um right. And I think that makes sense, but I think we can do AGL a lot I more. AGL
1: I saw was going to put one in their Long Yang Power Station. I think was the last headline I saw. And was it this week? Maybe a late last week. So it's definitely happening, isn't
2: it? Yeah. So that's well, that's the, that's in Victoria, right? So that's supposed yep. to be the become the Australia's or become Australia's <laughs> every every battery that is now being built is is I supposedly know. the biggest <laughs> biggest <know>. battery <laughs> at that point in time. Yeah. Um, yeah but I think it's, a, it's a, There's a, the grid is going to change in ways that people yeah. don't imagine today. Totally. Um, and it's going to be a lot more software technology than, you know, just blowing coal and sending the, uh, the power through. So, um, you know what I think's think weird
1: though, mate? Like, I take your point about upgrading the grid. And I know that adding solar causes complexity and load and stuff. But when that happens, when they bring a new, a new you know, when, when the realities of generation for any other supplier is bought on stream... They don't charge the supplier. They charge us as, as consumers, right? Like the whole the whole pricing process says, "Hey, energy costs this much to generate, so you can charge this much, and the poles and are this much. So we'll add that to your bill, and so the consumers get whacked with the net result, right? Like that. You know, we we pay the cost of production, and there's a pricing regulator whose job it is to say this: how much you may charge based on your costs, and all of a sudden." We're getting charged their costs, and then we're getting charged our costs. It just it feels like you know head, heads we heads we lose, tails we still lose. It, it just I don't know. I I don't want to be too skeptical. I, it just strikes me that there does seem it seems like an unusually. Stri- Look, unless they're genuinely trying to dis- disincentivize solar, which is what this in theory would do by by putting a price signal, it makes it less attractive to have solar than it was last time or yesterday or tomorrow. Um, it just—it makes no sense to me that unless we actually do want to discourage it, you want to defray the cost over a large base of users and say this is part of the energy supply network. This is part of the gross cost of energy, and part of that gross cost of energy is is poles and wires and you know gridding, um energy uh, not import but energy generation from whatever source. Here is the net cost i don't know maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe the energy regulator does charge more to gas and less to coal more to coal less to gas based on some part of its generation reality but i'm going to say i'm going to say they don't i'm going to assume and i might be wrong i'm going to assume they don't i'm going to assume that the companies bear the cost of the movement in the wholesale energy price and i I just it just strikes me as bizarre that they would look at, and frankly, it's bloody good for the environment Mike, above anything else, right? Like to, to disincentivize something that's actually going to improve air quality, I don't know, it just it strikes me as the most bizarre thing I've heard in a very long time. And am I biased? Yes, of course. I've got panels on the roof, but like, I don't really care. Um, charge me 7% more, but don't charge everyone else 7% more. Like, you know, if, if, you're, if you want to call me biased, I'm, I'll pay the I'll pay the extra uh, for the privilege of, of ranting about it. But just it just strikes me as mad, mate. Yeah, well,
2: yeah, I couldn't disagree with that. So I'll, I'll say... <laughs> I like that let's rant.
1: get to let's get to the parts I've been promising this whole podcast, mate. Let's get to you. Let's talk about you. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. Um, you are you're going to leave the multi full sadly uh, at the end of this week, and uh, we will have you back, I'm sure, uh, for guest appearances from time to time. But one of we've had some great feedback. I will share some of that on Sunday. So this isn't the end of the Doc Festival. We'll have a bit more feedback. Some great feedback from some of our very kind listeners. Um, well, honest listeners. Frankly, They don't even have to be kind. They're just being honest about the value you've created for them, mate. But while I have a chance to to, to ask you in, in unfairly in a, in a short issue amount of time, um, plenty of people have really valued and, and got a lot of um, f- literal value, i.e. made money, uh, and also improved their thinking and their investing approaches because of your insights. If I asked you to share with our listeners one, one more time for the road, again, until you come back from time to time as a special guest, um, your investment philosophy, mate, what, what do you want to leave our listeners with? If you, if you had to say, look, guys, I'm out of here. But remember this, or do this, or don't forget this, or here's what's important. What would you share?
2: Well, at a high level, you know, like, I I think one of the things that happens in investing is everybody's in a hurry to get to a destination. And I think the most important thing is to realize that it is really a long journey. And I think the most important thing that I've learned over, say, you know, past 10, 15 years is... It seems like nothing is happening in the first five years. Then it seems something is happening in the next five, and then you really start seeing benefits in the next five. So, I mean, investing—you right. really have to take a really long uh, view. And that's mm. simply because of the part of compounding, right? I mean, it's the doubling effects, right? If you double every five years, by the 15th year, you have mm. got up a lot, right?
0: So yeah, you're, you're, that's right.
2: You're, you're, you know, it's a 4x, you know, you double in yes. first, or, or actually more than that. You double in the first five, then you go, you know, four in the next five, and then you're eight in the next five, mm-hmm. right? So in 15 years, if you do 8x, that is a significant difference right and along the way you would add funds i think so that's i think sometimes it eludes us we forget about it um and uh another thing another thing that happens is we have a tendency to look at always the next thing that you know We always are looking for and as investors you know we're always looking for new ideas and that's what we do Mm -hmm. but i think sometimes we forget that the best ideas might actually already be in your portfolio, or some of the best ideas might already <laughs> yeah, be in yeah. your portfolio, right? Yeah. And you could add to them and make some fantastic returns out of them, right? Um, that's the other thing I think that's really, really uh, important. So you know, not not hurrying, and and I think looking inside what you hold and trying to see, well, you know, that's a great idea. And as I've said many times, I think you want to find the best companies. Uh, within your universe that you can you know if you feel comfortable with and investing invest in those. Uh, I mm. think that is important largely because knowing that you've invested in something that's great yeah. helps you uh, ride volatility. Like you just know, take volatility right down, right? It doesn't perturb me because when I look at my portfolio, I said these are some of the best companies that exist on the planet. Just yeah, sure they can be uh, volatile, that's okay. I can add some now Um, but you know I I feel you know really good that these businesses are the ones that are changing in their respective fields what they do what's happening they are disrupting the world they are changing everything and they're changing the world for better I think that sort of perspective helps Um, and and that's largely you know this is again doesn't work for growth in in income investors it's really hard but even if you're income investing too you could invest in the best income generator that has been a steady income generator that's a good company and, and that is delivering income for you um, you know, and has a history of doing that. I think so. Th- I think that's the other uh, important important thing. I think to think about is that you know you need to have confidence in your businesses because otherwise, uh, in times like this, you feel like oh you know that thing is down so much you know. You know, I look at this and say, well, you know, if my portfolio is down twenty five percent, yay! You know, that means if I have some cash on the sides, I can actually now invest and. A- and and I think that's an important thing to realize the I guess the final the most important thing is n- never be too confident uh, about what you know and what you don't know well, because because <laughs> this is important because you might know everything but the market has you know has its whims and uh, it could decide to be really <laughs> really rough with you uh, and that goes back to the you know the stuff you talk about leverages that you know, be careful if you have leverage, you know, if, you, if you're using leverage, know that you have leverage and the leverage kills, right? Leverage is the number one reason companies are destroyed, you know, uh, leverage is the number one reason that companies, you know, have to significantly dilute um, their shareholders and leverage is the re- reason that you're a good company actually does not de- deliver returns. Um, I think so those are some, some very, very high level uh, things. You know, um, everybody's individual investing style, I think they need to find it. And, and mm. you, you need to find what works for you and make that work for you. And it's, it's again, it's a
1: continuous process. Terrific advice, man. I love that. Can I ask you to reflect a little bit on growth? So uh, you've given some wonderful advice there for, for every investor, your specific expertise, your your you have a fantastic track record at Multifold Extreme Opportunities of our members. And, and I know they thank you for the work you've done to bring them some fantastic winning stocks. Um the, the, the context of growth, mate, the, the the idea of why growth works, why you're a growth investor, um, a lot of that, by the way, I think is probably, you know, um, <laughs> for all of us, tends to be a, a personality driven thing as much as anything. But um, we also have learned, I know, I know you've learned from, from others who are, are fantastic growth investors, something that's clicked with you as being smart and worth doing. Just why growth and maybe how you do growth investing in a way that Allows you to benefit from the volatility, and and frankly, the winners and the losers in a portfolio of growth stocks.
2: Yeah, so so an extreme opportunity. First, you know, a big you know shout out to uh, Kevin Gandia who's who's going to uh, who's now leading the service. Uh, I've just done my last BBNs yesterday. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he was kind enough to say, you can pick them, so if they don't work out well, <laughs> you, can, you, you can lay the blame on me. Um, <laughs> uh, or, Kevin, you can lay the blame on me. So, so again, to, so to shout out to Kevin. You know, fantastic um, um, stock picker, a brilliant yep. uh, mind. You know, it was fantastic to work with him so closely. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm 100%, more than 100% certain that, you know, the Extreme Opportunities members will be in very, very good hands with Kevin. Um, so again, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time working with Kevin, and, and mm. I'm sure that uh, others are gonna enjoy you know, the, the stocks that are gonna come um, forth. So putting that aside, I think, you know, like the thing with growth is, so so growth is is a good way to invest because you don't have to be specific about valuation. Right. right? and. And the reason you don't have to be specific about valuation is growth allows you the opportunity to be even fifty percent wrong with your valuation and still actually come out <laughs> okay. Right, right. It's hard it's much harder to to play around with things like turnarounds or slow growers because those I've I've held the view that those things can be be modeled easily by a computer. Uh, and you know, once a computer starts modeling and is relatively accurate, I think you can't beat it. It's very difficult. So therefore, you know, the 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 potential range of outcomes on those things is going to be very tight. And the only way to beat it, I guess, is to have significant variant perception. So you know, you have to see something that the the, the quant model or the you know the other algorithmic models don't see. Uh, so which is why I prefer growth because for a very simple reason, most. Computer models would not be looking out ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty years, <laughs> um, right? It's also very difficult to bake in optionality, right? So, how do you, um, so what one way to put it, I'll give you, you know, how do you, how how do you look at say, I'll use token as an example. Uh, I'll say, how do you look at Kogan when it, when, it, when it is listed and say, well, this business could one day be doing a little bit of, you know, uh, retailing of energy, a little bit of retailing of NBN. And none of those things are a big deal in itself, but they are customer funnels in one way or the other, right? Uh, how do you look at that? You, do, you can't, you know, that, that is basically a type of growth and that a model can't capture. Very difficult for a model card capture. Part of that comes from the uh, a disruptive leader who thinks about problems differently, is looking at problems in a different way. Your model is not going to capture that, right? So I think whereas if I take, I don't know, let's assume McDonald's is an example. McDonald's is steady growth, has got so many, you know, macas all around the world. That's relatively straightforward to model. You know that it's going to grow at X percent every year, and you know a little bit of variation here and there. And if you have a good view of what the discount rates are going to be, which is effectively an idea of what the, um, you know, the risk-free rate is going to be, uh, then you have a value, right? It's very difficult to have an edge, a substantial edge. So that's sort of been my view. Uh, it's with growth investing, you are investing on disruption and investing on people that are disrupting. And that is very, very qualitative. You're also sometimes investing on technology, which requires you to understand what's happening. Mm. And again, as I dare say, that 90% of the investors, including professional investors, have no idea of the underlying technology. They don't even know how to look yes. at the underlying technology. <laughs> they just you're just think, okay, this thing is growing at X percent. Seems like a big market. I'm just going to invest in it, right? And that, mm. that again, is a, is a way to uh, to gain some edge. So I, like, I like growth. Largely because I think in, in, most of growth tends to be technology driven, um, and you know that you're betting on people, ideas. And I'm big on ideas changing the world. So, mm.
1: can I ask you a know, question, mate? Um, yeah, you mentioned technology, and some of the listeners are going to listen listening, thinking, "Well, I, I got. I, I was with you right up until the bit where you said most people don't understand the technology well enough." And I'm someone. I'll talk me personally, but any of our listeners <laughs> hypothetically saying. I don't really understand that technology well enough either. I, I'm, I don't have an edge over anybody else. I'm no, I'm no smarter or more informed than the average bear or, or the average professional investor. Does that preclude us from investing in technology companies? Uh, yeah, for, for the, for the no something investor, I say no nothing investor. But you take me for example, right? I don't really understand the new database technology being promulgated by MongoDB, as one of the companies you've talked about before. Um, I don't really claim to understand the differences in Tesla's battery technology versus someone else's battery technology. Um, the, the, the tech stuff that's specific like that, should I, should our listeners, if they don't feel like they have an edge, they don't know it well enough to say. I know it better than the average market punter. Should we stay away from those? Should we grit our teeth and go down that path? How, how would you recommend a growth investor or someone who wants to invest growthily invest if they don't have that expertise?
2: Well, so, so number one, you can follow people who have that expertise or who have a track record of that expertise, right? Like, um, I mean, you know, one of the, you know, I am I am forever the greatest fan of David Gardner, Motley um, M- Fool co-founder, right? I mean, he's mm-hmm. an English major, right? But I yes. would say he's probably yeah. one of the greatest tech investors, growth investors of all time, right? right, probably the greatest growth investor of all time. So, I mean, it is a skill that you can learn. It's a skill that you have, can get by being observant. You don't have to be a technology expert or know technology. Oh, yeah. I'm not claiming I understand everything about technology. I, I know a very narrow slice of technology, right? Maybe by being, by working in technology, and maybe I'm able to read things quickly and sort of, you know, figure things mm-hmm. out relatively quickly. But, you know, do I know enough about electric grids, for example? I don't, right? But I mean, okay. you know, that's not my expertise area. But you know, if, but if I try, I can understand. And I Makes bet sense. a lot of people can understand, right? So I mean, that's so that is an opportunity one to to learn. The uh, other thing I think is, I think sometimes you need to be willing to think a little bit. Sometimes it's a little little bit thinking out of the box, right? So. My favorite example for this is, and I know this is an example, there's always a counter example, but my favorite example for this is Apple. I've been banging on about Apple for as long as I've been at The Motley Fool. I know there are so many people who have been bears, oh, you know, these smartphones, Apple's phones are, Mm -hmm. but I've always been of the view that this is a very wrong lens of looking at a great company. I mean, how many companies are as great as Apple? Probably the list is like small, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at a great company. You have to try to sort of understand, I think, the ethos of the company, right? So, you know, you you can think of Apple as a hardware seller. That's a Mm -hmm. very poor way of thinking about the company. And then, you know, looking at, well, how many devices did they sell? This again, which is what happens, right? If you think about what has happened over time, is the company basically said, I'm not going to give you the unit sales figures because that is actually (laughs) a wrong way of thinking about the company. Yeah, it's a right. company in the business of selling tools that makes people's lives better, right? right. If you take that view, so it's a, if it's a company that is, it specializes in human-computer interaction. If you take that view, its opportunity set is wider than anything else. It can pretty much decide to do anything and it has the brand power to actually get into that. That's a very, very different view that you can take from uh, it should be priced as, you know, it should be priced like a consumer discretionary goods uh, like say Coca-Cola. That's another view, right? But I mean, you know, the market still hasn't figured out how to think about Apple because they think of sometimes, they think of, oh, there's a services business. We should think of it as a consumer discretionary, luxury, good, and therefore it should have like a, you know, Louis Vuitton type uh, multiple uh, or like a Coca-Cola right. type multiple and not like a hardware type multiple. I think it's, you know, can, that's an opportunity to think about so I think thinking about what a company actually does and what a company mm. is great about is I think very fundamental to at least some of the things that I invest in is it looks at those things and again you know you can you can get those by being observant and trying to think about it and you know you can you don't even have to be a tech investor I mean you know if you're if you're an Apple product user you can uh, you can sort of you can feel why it is different, and what is different about it? Of course, um, there's there's the other issues that you can apply your negative experiences with certain things and say, well, you know, I don't like this, this, and this. But you know, but I think that that sort of misses the uh, misses the high higher level uh, yeah, story, right. right? So I think again, um, yeah, th- I think that there are there are ways to think about. I think the key thing is that you want to think about. If you don't have a different way of thinking about something that's well established well seen well noticed by the market then i think you have very little option uh of Mm. being getting better returns than what the market thinks that it should get right i mean i think that ultimately that's what happens but you know i think the apple story is fantastic because again still i think the market doesn't know how to think about apple which i think is fantastic just you know Otherwise, there's no reason to invest in the you know the world's largest publicly listed <laughs> company because well you know everybody should be able to fairly figure it out but I think people have no idea of how to think about it which is uh, which is I think great
1: <laughs> beautiful Mate, that is a, I think that is a wonderful way to finish this uh, reg- last regular podcast we will come back surprise surprise with a mailbag episode as i mentioned earlier in the program mate that is spectacular advice thank you very much for sharing that with me and with our fellow fools both paid and on this podcast mate over the last five plus years Um, we've certainly benefited greatly i'll say me personally has benefited greatly and i'm sure our listeners have too from your wisdom and insight so you are going to come back One more time, at least formally, uh, as part of the full team this Sunday. But in the meantime, that does wrap us up. Don't miss Sunday's episode. Make sure you have subscribed to the Motley Fool Money podcast. Do it through iTunes on Doc's behalf. Do it through any one of your favourite Android podcast apps like Pocket Cast which I use or look for the Listener app L-A-S-T-N-R there's no E in there that's the new podcast app by Southern Cross Austereo and it's the uh, podcast family we're a member of here at Motley Full Money. If you do like what we're doing please give us a rating five stars would be lovely. Um, give Doc five stars. Come on, do the right thing. And do please tell your friends because if you've benefited from the podcast, we're pretty sure they can too. You can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and some marketing from us by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you on Sunday with a special mailbag dose of Foolish Insight. Full Fool on. full on.